Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. After the Civil War was over, Abraham Lincoln spoke to 15,000 people, without amplification, mind you, for three minutes, a speech constituted by only 275 words, and it was famously titled, that speech, the Gettysburg Address. He began with these immortal words that shaped a nation, fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. With those simple words, Lincoln gave our nation a new identity, that we are not a nation of masters and slaves, blacks and whites, northerners and southerners, but that we are all fundamentally created by God as equals. Well, that vision, that declaration has, of course, stayed with us to this day, and we are still wrestling with how that manifests itself in our own midst, what it's like to live into that vision that was given to us. There are certain moments within history in general, but also within personal history, that certainly establish us in a new identity. Uh, I was just thinking about uh, some of the weddings that I've done recently and how those Weddings grant to two people, in a very real way, a new identity where they are no longer two, but made one flesh in holy matrimony. The same thing can occur uh, at an adoption. Whenever that adoption has become legal, that child, that little boy, that little girl, that teenager, is no longer alone, but now belongs technically and quite legally to a family. The same thing, sometimes more nefariously, can be said of a fraternity. Once you go through the hazing and pass, once you do, of course, nothing dubious, but you get, you jump through all the hoops, you are now part of the brotherhood of the fraternity. The same can be said of a sports team. Once you're finally accepted as a member of that team, it is no longer only about you. It is about the us that a team represents. There are certain moments in life that grant us something of a new identity, and new identifications can be extremely helpful. They can give us a sense of self, they can give us a sense of belonging, they can help us to overcome things that we could not overcome otherwise, they can give us a new destiny, new goals, and they can form us very deeply. Well, for believers in Jesus, there is no act of identification quite like baptism. I thought it was appropriate to speak about baptism today because we're having a baptism, but also because the text assigned for today deals directly with baptism. Baptism is an act of identification. In holy baptism, Jesus Christ himself identifies with us and we with him. Uh, And so I'm going to deal with this very dense and rich text. It's like a triple chocolate cake uh, from Colossians chapter 2. I will only be speaking about verses 11 and 12 because there's enough here to consider. 
And I want to really address, define, unpack three words within our passage. I want to talk about circumcision, I want to talk about baptism, and I want to talk about faith. And hopefully as we grapple with all of these three words, we'll get to see the profundity uh, that is present in the act that we are about to engage in uh, with young Hannah. Let me speak about circumcision because that is the context of this passage. It's also the context in Judaism from which baptism arose. This is verse 11. I encourage you please to follow along with me in your bulletin. Chapter 2, verse 11 in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Paul writes in verse 11, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. There's a universe packed into those words. Let me try to explain it briefly. As you may know, circumcision uh, was the Old Testament entrance rite into Judaism. If you as a male were going to be a Jew, either via birth or later through conversion, you had to be circumcised in order to demonstrate physically, permanently, intimately, and viscerally that you are part of the people of God. Now, lots of people, those skeptical of the Old Testament and others just curious about the Old Testament, why circumcision? I mean, it's a very strange, like, badge of belonging, something so intimate and painful. Why didn't God give the Jews, like, a decoder ring or a really uh, interesting and memorable nickname? No, he chooses this sort of intimate surgery. Uh, Why circumcision? There are many uh, reasons, friends, lots of theological reasons that I don't have time to get into. Um, One of them, of course, is that the marking of the genitals in this way has to do with the concept of progeny, children, man's capacity for children. It is an intimate reminder that you and your future family, created in part by that organ, are destined to be set aside for God. That's one of the reasons that circumcision was chosen. It's an ever-present physical reminder that you belong to this family of fellow circumcised people. You belong to the family of Jeremiah, of Ezekiel, of Isaiah, of David, of Solomon, of Moses, all the way back to Abraham. You are the people of God set aside by this intimate physical uh, ritual that demonstrates clearly your belonging. That's all true, but there are two other things that I think are more pertinent for our text. Circumcision in the Old Testament also involved the shedding of blood. And the shedding of blood always within Judaism is sometimes, always within Judaism is is a symbol, a reminder of the notion of sacrifice. I'm not saying that circumcision was sacrifice. I'm saying that blood rituals tend to remind us of that. Because in the Old Testament, it is clear without the shedding of blood, no remission of sins is offered. Um, that was true within the sacrificial system of the temple. It was also true whenever uh, uh, God made movement toward us or we toward God. That was often done through covenants. And, and in the Hebrew language, you didn't make a covenant with somebody. The language is much clearer and much sharper, if I can put it this way. You cut a covenant with somebody, inferring the shedding of blood. And within the Circumcision Act, you understand that there is something about God and our lack of connection with God that is overcome through this reminder, at least, of sacrifice. That's part of it. Um, But circumcision also very obviously involved a cutting off of intimate skin. 
It was a a symbolic reminder. The literal surgery was a symbolic reminder that there are aspects of us as human beings that need to be cut off and die in order for us to be really helped. This is why the prophets always came later and criticized Israel, saying, you're, you're not really understanding the ritual of circumcision correctly. You think it's all about surgery when you're a baby. They said, no, 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 it's a symbol that what you really need to have circumcised is your heart. The polluted aspects of who you are need to be cut off and thrown away. Jesus, by the way, taught the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, saying if your hand causes you to sin, how about you hack it off and throw it away? Better to deal with that than to enter in your whole body into hell, right? That's what he says. Um, As a way of saying, we have to deal with certain aspects of our lives that require death. And um, by the way, um, many of you know what this is like, of course, because everybody in this room Everybody in this room has something in their life that desperately needs to die for the well-being of your soul and your family. Desperately needs to die. And circumcision was sort of a visual reminder of that kind of thing, that certain things needed to be cut off. Nevertheless, the result of circumcision in Judaism is that you are intimately and permanently identified with God's chosen family and that you belong not just soul but body to God. Your future belonged to God as well, your progeny. So that's the background of circumcision, into which Paul writes some of the most controversial things that anybody ever wrote, with, at least within the first century. Paul writes something wild to a Gentile, uncircumcised audience. So this is Paul, the circumcised Jew, writing something wild to his Gentile, uncircumcised audience, in which he tells them, you all have, in a way, been, let's call it, unconventionally circumcised. This is what he says in verse 11. You were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, that is, without surgery, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is he saying to all these Gentiles who grew up without the stories, without the Old Testament, without this understanding, without this entrance right? He's saying, you're all in anyway. You're all in the family of God. You don't have to have this surgery. You don't have to be part of Israel to be part of the people of God because you all have received a surgery that without hands, you've all received the circumcision of Christ. What an odd term. What on earth does that refer to? The circumcision of Christ. Well, he tells us, he tells us in the next point of my sermon, baptism. So that's something about circumcision. Now something about baptism. This is verse 12. Please read it along with me. Having been buried with him, that is with Jesus, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. Now, Paul sees the coming of the Christ as the great game changer for the whole world, that nothing is the same after the arrival, particularly after the death and resurrection of Jesus. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul is utterly convinced that circumcision as an entrance rite is put away forever and completely replaced with baptism baptism. The logic, how did Paul get there logically? Why putting away this one symbol and adopting the other? Uh, Because Jesus didn't only come for Jewish people. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the what? World. Everybody, right? Everybody. The Somalians, even the Canadians. Everybody. Um, And circumcision was originally a way of discerning who was a Jew 
and who wasn't. But after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it didn't matter who was a Jew and who wasn't, because Jews and Gentiles have the same crisis, namely that we are all under God's wrath and judgment unless there's an escape from wrath and judgment. We are all under the power of sin, uh, and we have uh, the same deliverer, both Jews and Gentiles. And Jesus, before he ascended, told his disciples to, en- to enact a, an entrance ritual for his converts. He did not say, go into all of the world and circumcise all of the dudes you find, thanks be to God. Instead, he said, go into all the world and what? Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. His last words to us. You have a new entrance right. Paul knows this and says circumcision has been done away forever. You have been circumcised with a circumcision without hands. You have something new. Now, let me say two things about baptism in this passage. First of all, and really importantly, baptism is far more inclusive than circumcision. Far more inclusive. That's why Paul is writing to a Gentile audience who has already been baptized and regards them as already in God's family. Because this right, baptism is not only for Jews, not only for the 1% of the population, but also for the 99% of the population, the Gentiles. It's meant for both men and women. It's meant for young and old, for Arabs and Asians, for people with such notorious, sinful, dark, devious pasts that those pasts would make a nun cry for a thousand years. Baptism is for those people. It's a symbol that includes all of us, a rite that includes all of us. So it's hyper-inclusive, far more inclusive than the old rite. Baptism covers us all, not just some of us. By the way, as a side note, but not an unimportant one, the inclusivity of baptism as over against circumcision is why the churches of the Reformation retained the baptism of infants. Why? Because under the old covenant of circumcision, infants were included in the covenantal family of God, male infants, via circumcision. So the Reformers thought it would also be important to give the New Testament symbol of belonging, the New Testament entrance rite, which is more, much more inclusive than the Old Testament rite, that we wouldn't lose that inclusivity, but in fact declare via the sacrament of holy baptism that the promises are true, to quote St. Peter from the book of Acts, for you and for your children. Since Jesus welcomes children, the Old Testament uh, sign involves children, they thought baptism should too. Just a side note, but maybe not an unimportant one. But then secondly, not only is it more inclusive than circumcision, baptism is a mark of identification with Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, being a Christian isn't only about feelings, but about something that happens to your body, something that happens to you quite physically. And in baptism, we engage in mimicry. This is what Paul is saying in our passage. Baptism is like a mimic ritual. We mimic the definitive actions of the final week of Jesus' life, particularly his death and resurrection. That's why Paul says in this passage, we have been buried with him and we have been raised with him. That in this action, we are somehow mystically conjoined to the Christ who died for us and rose again. And so baptism is this identification with a Christ who has a very distinctive mission. Um, 
So baptism mimics uh, Jesus' sin-obliterating acts. You may know that Jesus' mission was ultimately to take upon himself everything which is destroying us, everything which toxifies our lives, anything that degrades us. Whatever that is, Jesus on the cross takes that into his person and is destroyed by it and later, three days later, rises again to conquer it. But Jesus' core mission is to absolve and obliterate your sin. But it's both. He comes to forgive you and to take away our precious toys. He comes to destroy sin. Uh, And baptism mimics those sin-obliterating acts. His demise is mimicked as we are lowered into the water or as water is poured over us. We're somehow mimicking his burial after his death. And his resurrection is mimicked because we're brought out of the water, or, to, or in today's case, the water stops being poured on us, right? Um, but that, the whole concept of that is that in being identified with Jesus' death and resurrection, the things that used to take hold of us, the things that had us by the throat, the regret that we live with, all of the inner torments and torture and self-accusation, all of the garbage that we live with on the inside is, from God's perspective, definitively taken care of. It has all been under the waterfall of Christ's blood. It is all entirely washed away. And those, right, who are plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That all of the things that used to dehumanize us do not do so in the eyes of God anymore. And we are brought into a place of newness of life. And so to be baptized means that our sin, of course, is entirely forgiven. We get this visual reminder of it in the waters of baptism. And more than that, God begins to obliterate it within us, to set us free to be truly human again. That that's what's symbolized in this mimicry of burial and resurrection, uh, that we are freed. We begin to be freed in this life. That's what baptism means. So it's this inclusive rite that identifies us publicly with the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that's something about circumcision, something about baptism. Now lastly, something about faith. This is verse 12 again. Please read it with me. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. External rites are good, necessary, and needful. We are created beings who rely upon creation to sustain ourselves. And we have in Christianity a tangible religion that utilizes physical materials to communicate eternal truths like water, bread, and wine. But those tangible signs are not an end in and of themselves. They exist to trigger, uh, to engineer faith or trust from within us about which those signs uh, signify, those things that the signs signify. Um, Some uh, put it like this. In the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion, God gives us this check of redemption that is signed by our faith. I like that illustration faith or trust that these things are true, faith is the very thing within us that says yes to what baptism promises. Faith says yes, Christ died for me, even me. Faith says yes, Christ was raised for me. Faith says yes, I am clean because of Christ, not through my efforts. Faith says yes, I am buried with Christ And yes, I will be raised with Christ. And yes, nothing can keep me from the love of God that is in Christ. In other words, 
baptism gives faith something to cling on to, something objective and historic in time to cling on to, an objective, personal, permanent sign that Christ has offered us everything, promised us everything, vowed everything, and faith is the thing that receives that internally, takes that external marker that was given to us on the outside and makes it real on the inside. Incidentally, when we pray for Hannah today during holy baptism, what we're praying is that God would effectuate everything that is occurring to her through the water in her heart to make it real for her on the inside, not just on the outside. Now, uh, for some of us, our baptism came first because we were infants, we don't remember it, and later we came to a place of belief. For others, they believed first and then later were baptized. I'm not so concerned about the order. I'm more concerned that both faith and baptism are part of a believer's life. And so if you've come to faith later in life, some people put off baptism. They put off baptism because they're not ready, whatever that means. Like they haven't gotten everything figured out. They haven't completely solved all of their moral crises. So they're going to wait. I don't know until when, because those things, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't wait on that. That's like Constantine the Great, right? The emperor, he like waited two days before his death to be baptized to make sure he worked out all his issues. By the way, he didn't. Um, all I would urge you to, to do is like, if, if you are a believer in Jesus and have yet to be baptized, how about you talk to us today, right? Don, we'll even do it today. Like, why wait? Um, you don't have to be ready because, friends, um, the sacrament, the sacrament is not about what you do. Baptism and communion are not about what you do. They're ultimately about what God does for us. These sacraments are about redemption. They're about love to the person who needs love. They're about the person who's been demolished, receiving grace from God, apart from what they've done or left undone. So it's important to recognize that in baptism, um, we get a glimpse of the gospel, which creates faith. Uh, And so uh, faith is something that hangs on to the promise that is implicit in baptism. So that's something about baptism, or circumcision, something about baptism, something about faith. And let me close by saying this, that we are a people in this place who have been gifted with a baptismal identity. You have a baptismal identity today, meaning that you are permanently allied with Jesus Christ and permanently allied with those other people who are permanently allied with Jesus Christ through baptism. In other words, baptism is both vertical and horizontal. It has to do with God and God fixing our crisis, but it also has to do with bonds shared by other baptismal people. So let me speak to those two things briefly. Friends, in baptism, we are identified with Christ. We get a tangible, aquatic sign that that Christ stands with us and we with him. Baptism is the ultimate identity marker. I was thinking about it today. You know, I am many things. Ethan Magnus is many things, some of them pleasant, some of them unpleasant. I'm an American. I am very white. Um, I just, I, I can't help myself. I'm just pasty. I'm a man. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm an Anglican. I'm a minister. I'm a cook. I'm an artist, sort of a low-grade artist. I have a Myers-Briggs test result. I'm an INFP. It's very exciting. Um, I think Journey is one of the best bands from the 1980s. Those things are all important and influential in my life. But friends, none of those things is my core. They are not my core identity. I am what my baptism says that I am. I am washed in Christ, buried with Christ, 
raised with Christ, and forever bonded to God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is my irreducible, and that is your irreducible. What happens in this life is we get our vision clouded with all sorts of other identity markers that, yes, may be important, but they're not foundational because they always give way with the passing of time and the passing of fashion. We have something far more impressive, meaning that we belong to the only secure center. We are, we are grafted in to the rock of ages. We have a place that will never give way. Your baptismal identity is actually deeper than your DNA because it's founded by an eternal God. And so that is your irreducible as, as your identity. You are identified with Christ. But also, we the baptized are identified with others who share the same baptism because, as I've said from this pulpit before, water is thicker than blood. Water is thicker than blood. In other words, our relationship to each other in Christ Jesus is more important than even biological kinship. Uh, we are a community that says we are bonded by baptism. We are a community that is being shaped by baptism and that we are learning what it means to die to sin and thrive in the newness of life by grace. And I played in this last week a sort of surreptitious Sherlock Holmes looking for signs, clues, signals of this new baptismal identity amongst us here at Grace. I have found too many to mention, but I will mention a few. One has to do with the dining room. Monique and I went to somebody's home the other night for some hospitality. They have a beautiful home, a great dining room. They cook marvelously well. And I asked them, what is your history of hospitality? This seems to come so naturally for you. You make everybody feel at home right away, completely non-anxious presence in this house, and your food is always remarkable. You make everybody feel special. How did you learn how to do this? And they said, well, we had a friend a long time ago teach us that this house is not our house. It's God's house. And this food is not our food, it's God's food. We at best are stewards for a little while of these good things, and so who are we to hoard it? And if we can make people feel a little more welcome and a little less alone, then we should probably do that. And it's our delight to do that. And I thought, that's a baptismal identity, because a baptismal identity gives you thoughts like that. Like we're part of the body of Christ, we're part of something bigger. We have all these connections with people that we may not agree with politically, we don't have the same family structure, we may not have the same... Uh, you know, fashion sense or social economic status, doesn't matter. Who cares? Because we're bonded by baptism. Second clue, an apology. Uh, one of you apologized to another one of you uh, in a very heroic way because you realized that you had said something rather abrasive uh, and you wish you hadn't said it. And so you said to the other person, you know, I didn't and don't agree with you about this particular thing, but I had no right, absolutely no right, to talk to you the way I did. Who gives me the right to scold you like that? That's an immoral thing, and I'm sorry. Well, that's a baptismal identity, because you can realize when you're wrong, and you can apologize for it knowing that grace covers everything. It's a wonderful thing, by the way, to say you're sorry to somebody. It's completely liberating for you and for the person who hears it. I encourage it. I encourage more apologies, but that's part of a baptismal identity. Third, softball. That's the next clue. Softball. <laughs> Friends, even with the mighty coaching of Herr Shepson, we, we did not necessarily triumph in all ways this year in softball. No trophies for us. However, however, this was posted on Facebook about our team with a, with an, uh, a non-deliberate misspelling. Uh, this is what somebody not from this church posted. I want to give props to Grace Angelican Church. <laughs> it's just so good. 
I don't know what an angelic kid is, but I so want to be one someday. Um, this is what they wrote. They are by far the most gracious and fun team that our church has ever played with this year. I sincerely hope that they decide to continue in our league. I cannot tell you as your rector how proud I am of you that somebody would write those words and write them publicly, that you represented not some stupid, ruthless competition, but you actually were humane with people and fun and gracious and kind and normal. Like you, you made not just us, you made the kingdom look good that day. Well, that's a baptismal identity thing because you realize life is not always about winning. It's like how you treat people. That's a baptismal identity thing. And lastly, clue four, Hannah. Hannah is going to make vows today about belief in Jesus and trust in the scriptures, but we will make a vow today as well. We will vow to support her in her new life in Christ. We vow today to be Hannah's sister, brother, in the faith, that we are going to connect with her and support her in this new life in Christ. So there are clues everywhere. I encourage you to look for them for this baptismal identity and to live into this baptismal identity of people that are beginning to see what a beautiful thing it is to die to wretchedness and to live in newness of life and to walk wildly in the grace of God. So that's the point, friends. Baptism speaks Christ's word of identification over us. His death counts for us. His resurrection counts for us. In baptism, we are identified with the Messiah and with others who are identified with that same Messiah. Thank God for this indelible mark that reminds us that we are washed, we are new, and we are permanently lovely in the sight of an eternal heaven. Amen.